0: For another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, July 9th, 2010. We will be doing Friday Light today. I know that's crazy talk. Unbelievable. But it's true. (laughs) And I'm going to play another one of my lectures... Now, I may have played this a long time ago We're in a galaxy far, far away on this program, but I think it's worth revisiting. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. It's important work that has to be done nowadays, and it's... <laughs> it's incumbent upon us to pay close attention to what people believe, teach, and confess, especially if they're our pastors, uh, because we want pastors who will point us to Christ and feed us with God's Word, not ones who will point us to ourselves and feed us with, um, well, pop psychology, self-help, and all that kind of stuff. Now, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith is a lecture that I delivered. This is going on you know, maybe three, four years ago. And the name of it is 3D Theology. It's this idea that uh, theology is three-dimensional, it's not flat. And it it seeks to answer the question, why is it that two churches that have almost identical doctrinal statements or pretty much similar orthodox doctrinal statements uh, produce two different, completely different types of folk? One produces um, really legalistic, self-focused, pietistic folk who... uh, are really obsessed with themselves and their fulfilling of God's law, while the other group produces uh, Christians who are disciples of Jesus Christ who have been broken by God's law and have despaired of their own righteousness and look only to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, their salvation, and uh, and even their sanctification. Why is it that two churches with almost identical uh, doctrinal statements can produce two different types of folk like this. Well, it's because doctrine and theology is three-dimensional, and that is, is that every doctrine, every theology, every church has a center for its theology, and what that center is determines the outcome, but not only that, what it is that you know, what it is they worship and focus on. So without any further ado, here is my lecture on three-dimensional theology. So uh, welcome to our Sunday school class. I always like going through our presuppositions, and I almost feel like uh, today's
1: lesson is going to explain a little bit more as to why we have these presuppositions that we work with and how they fit in our theology. Um, We always work from sola scriptura that the Bible is the inerrant word of God and the supreme authority of truth and doctrine regarding the true worship of God. There's things that we could add to that, but I'll get to that later in the lesson Solus Christus, that we are saved by Christ's work alone. Sola gratia, we are saved by grace alone. Sola fide, through faith alone. And the class is interactive. That means that you can stop and ask me questions. Now, many of you know that I have a website that I uh, claim to be the curator of. It's called the Museum of Idolatry, and it's found at a little com. And so I always pull little things that I call Maddening Wine from them. If you all are interested in uh, sharing your faith in Jesus Christ and you just don't have the words, um, you can let your ankles do it now. Um, See, praise Jesus. You yeah, know, right there on the back of the ankle. So, you know, if you're standing in line, you know, at the grocery store and you want to have a witness, then, you know, there you go. Um, the people who make those socks also make uh, insoles for your shoes. And on the insoles are Scripture verses. So you put those in your shoes and you can be standing on the Word of God. I mean, I'm not making that up. All right. Now, this is interesting. This next one actually plays in today's lesson, and so I might refer back to it. Um, we've got the Superheroes Bible. And uh, there's a very spelt uh, Moses. Yeah, does anyone know how old Moses was at the time of the birding bush? Wasn't he like 80-something? Dude, he looks good in his 80s. <laughs> um, yeah. So what we're looking at here is uh, the superheroes Bible. And the problem with this Bible and this approach to doing scriptures is it turns the people in the scriptures. Moses, Abraham, David. It turns them into the superheroes. Rawr,
2: yeah, be a David.
1: Conquer like Moses. Problem is, is that you know Moses was a murderer. Not much I I don't want to do the what would Moses do bracelet. Right, just just Good people, they're good examples. We need to follow their example. I don't want to follow Moses' example. He was a murderer. David, um, I don't want to follow his example either. Um, what would David do? Well, he coveted,
0: committed adultery.
1: So here's the deal: is that this way of approaching the Bible, we follow the examples of Moses and David and da da da, because they're the superheroes. It kind of misses the whole point. There's only one superhero. In parentheses, and that's Christ. And uh, the way he conquered sin and death by dying on a cross. Do you want to do what Jesus does? Take up your cross. Completely different approach. So today we're going to talk about what I'm, I kind of call three-dimensional theology. I'm, I'm trying to find a way of, of, of answering this question because it's always bothered me. And... Um, why is it that two Christian churches could have almost identical doctrinal statements while one produces legalistic Pharisees and the other produces sober-minded disciples of Jesus Christ who trust Christ alone for their salvation and their lives are marked by the good works produced by the Holy Spirit? How is this possible? Why does this happen? I mean, you look at evangelicalism and it just seems like there's so much of it you know, that you can say if you look at their doctrinal statement, we we're supposedly have a lot in common, Right? But why is it that there's just something is so radically different? We don't feel at home. And so the answer I've come up with is kind of picture here is that theology is three-dimensional. It's not two-dimensional. Let me give an example of two-dimensional theology. Church A believes in the Trinity, the deity of Christ, biblical inerrancy, baptism, salvation by grace alone, the regenerated life, and Christ's second coming. Right? Church B. Do you see any differences here? No. Why? Because this is really just a two-dimensional cursory look at their theology and doctrine. Okay? But here's the deal. Uh, Church A is producing legalistic Pharisees while Church B is uh, producing true disciples. Now this is where it gets interesting. Okay? Because this is where I'm saying theology is three-dimensional. Okay? and i 'm going to hopefully answer this question because i look at, I, I study I research, I listen to a lot of sermons uh, and and I'm for maybe my obsession theologically is with evangelicalism because I came out of it and I want to find a way to communicate the gospel to it effectively. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a conference for church planters okay um, if you if you've looked at my museum of idolatry, many of the it seems like there's a whole growing group of churches that have gone off the deep end from a marketing point of view to grow their churches. And what I found is that there was a common theme of all of these, uh, these churches, and they were connected to uh, an organization called churchplanners.com. Okay, churchplanners.com, they hold an annual conference, and it's called Evolve. Wouldn't it be fun if Lutherans had a conference and we'll just call it Stay Put? <laughs> I mean, isn't that kind of like the modern-day interpretation of "Here I Stand"? You know, you know, (laughs) these guys are all about changing the church. And so, what happens is, is that you know, these are the types of churches that do the 30-day sex challenge. Remember that hit in the news a couple weeks ago? And uh, to which I basically say, "30 days, you guys are wimps. We can do better than that." Um, But you know, it's all about these extreme marketing ideas to try to grow their church. And what? And so what I wanted to do is get out behind, from behind the laptop, head out there and talk with these pastors face-to-face, and try to see if I can wrap my head around why they're doing what they're doing. Because when you look at their doctrinal statements, for the most part you'd say, no, it's pretty orthodox. I mean, there's nothing glaring. It's not like they're Mormons. You know, They believe that Jesus and Lucifer are the brothers and that, that God is named Elohim and lives near Starbase Kolob. It's not, that's not what they're teaching OK, instead, you know, you, you just from a theological, cursory theological point of view, you're sitting there going, they s- supposedly believe the same things I do, but we're worlds apart. Why? OK, so going with the principle that theology is actually pretty simple. Um, there's a, there's a, two principles that they teach us in theological classes regarding how to study theology. One is the material principle. And so this is your uh, This is one of your big theological terms. Put this away in your notes. Pull this out at a party, and you'll impress your friends. Material principle, when we're talking about it theologically, it's the central teaching of a religion, religious tradition or movement, denomination, church, religious body, or organization. If properly identified and understood, the material principle helps people understand all the teachings of a religious group. All of the tenets of a doctrinal system can be explained in relationship to its material principle. Okay? Dr. Rosenblatt, back in the day when I was in college, I remember Silence of the Lambs came out, and uh, he liked to use this analogy. You've know, you got the Hannibal Lecter uh, character in prison, and Jodie Foster's character uh, comes to talk to him because she's trying to hunt down a, a serial killer, and uh, Hannibal Lecter says to her, what is his essence? What is his essence? You want, to, you want to find this guy, you have to understand what his essence, his heart is. Okay? Theologies have an essence, and that's what the material principle is. It's the center and heart of it. Now, theologies also have what are called formal principles. And this is the authority which forms or shapes the doctrinal system of a religion, religious body, movement, or tradition. And so formal principles tend to be texts or revered leaders of a religion or tradition. Okay? The Muni religion, Sun Yung Moon. You know, every, all of his teachings canonized become the formal pr- uh, principle of the Moonies. Okay, the Reformed tradition. Anyone here wants some bonus points on the final? Sovereignty of God. That's it. Material principle of Calvinism is either the sovereignty of God, or you can argue it's the glory of God. Okay, and so that's the center and heart of their theology. Everything else, like a, you know, like take a rock and throw it into a pond. And when the rock hits, it, you know, it ripples out. Okay, So for them, the center of their theology is the sovereignty or glory of God. Formal principle, sola scriptura. Scripture alone. Although we Lutherans would go, that's not exactly true for the Calvinists. Because they, uh, they have this sanctified view of reason that comes into play. They kind of backdoor that in. So that's, we would say that's part of their formal principle. But they would say, no, 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 no. We'd say, yes, 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 yes. Okay. All right. So here's the deal. Remember those, uh, those two churches? What, uh, so here's all these little doctrinal statements. They believe in the Trinity, biblical inerrancy, second coming, regenerated life, deity of Christ, baptism, salvation by grace. It's all just all over the place if you just take these things and you look at it two-dimensionally. Right? In, and some might be overplayed while others are downplayed. You just don't know. So all theologies pick a central doctrine and order and emphasize accordingly. Okay? And this is an important thing to understand. The center of your theology determines the object of your faith. This is a hard and fast rule. I've never seen this one broken. The center of your theology determines the object of your faith. So pick one. What are we going to have as our center? Right. Well, when I went to Georgia to the Evolve Conference, one of the things I did is I talked with a lot of pastors. Okay? This is an interesting movement, this whole church planner movement. The average, pers- the average pastor that was there was about 25 to 27 years old. Married for a couple of years, has two small kids. Dresses so much hipper and cooler than I ever did. And, you know, their big question when they're doing facial hair is whether or not to have a goatee or a soul patch. Yeah, I don't know, thinking about soul patch. I wonder what that would do with me. Son <laughs> says no. Um, and the one of the things I was trying to do was get to the heart of this, and so I wanted to see how the gospel played into their theology. So I interviewed about two dozen of them informally, and one of my challenge questions to them was, when was the last time you preached the gospel, the message of Christ crucified for our sins, and rather than apply it to the unchurched people who are attending your churches, you actually applied it to the believers in your congregation, 100%. one hundred percent. This is not an exce- There was no exceptions to this. One hundred percent of the pastors I interviewed answered the question with these words: "The believers in my congregation already know that." That told me the gospel is nowhere near the center of their theology. So I asked them some more questions, try to figure out what's going on. So. Many of these pastors that I interviewed, I also had the opportunity of listening to many of their sermons over the past couple of years. And so I was able to dialogue with them about their sermon series. Pastor, I noticed that uh, over the last year you did a sermon series on how to have greater romance, how to balance your budget, how to have uh, perfectly behaved children, um, things, you know, things like this. Why is it that you're preaching these sermons? You know, why, What's the whole point? Well, you have to understand that what we really want people to do is come to our church and experience a changed life. It's a try-before-you-buy mentality regarding evangelism. Here's the idea. You come to church, you're an unbeliever. We're going to give you principles from the Bible to make your life better. You go home and you apply these principles, your life gets better, and you're going to go, you know, I've got to try that Jesus Christ guy. So you go to church and you make a commitment to become a Christ follower and then really buy into the whole program. What's the center of this theology? Themselves. You can make that argument. The regenerated life. Okay, now, you're talking traditional Baptist theology. Okay, traditional Baptist theology has as its center the regenerated life. These newer guys... It's not even that. It's actually the changed life. But you have the right idea, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of come, go like this. Now, watch what happens. In their theology, the regenerated or the changed life is their material principle and their formal principle, even though it's Scripture, it's Scripture understood as guidebook. One of the things that absolutely... I found amazing in all of this, was when I heard these guys teach, heard them preach, it was how they used the Scriptures. Let us open up our Bibles and open to John chapter whatever, and we're going to read verse 17. Verse 17? Verse? And in there was some imperative or whatever. Do this. And see, we're going to form an entire sermon around digging out this one particular sentence and this one particular principle that is practical, and I can apply, so that I can see progress in my life, because the Bible is a guidebook for living. Salvation or conversion, in the way these new these new guys are talking, is I have made a commitment to become a Christ follower they still have some idea that what the unchurched person needs to hear is that, that uh, Christ died for their sins. They, they still have that sense of it. But what happens is, is that the message of the Gospel, it was, it, let's, let's pretend you people in the back rows, you people are unchurched, you're unbelievers in this congregation. So here's how I would preach to you. Um, if you're here this morning and you feel that God is speaking to you, your marriage isn't as good as it could be. You need to jump onto this 30-day sex challenge. And you're feeling convicted. Well, I've got good news for you. Christ died for your sins, you people in the back. Everybody in the forward pews, this doesn't apply to you. Okay? So what I want you to do is bow your heads and, and pray this prayer with me. And if you feel, if you feel God convicting you that you, you need to do these things, you people in the back... Go ahead and raise your hand if if you feel God's talking to you. But you people up here, this doesn't apply to you. I am not making this up. Okay? Now, here's how this is all... Let me me work this out. So in the regenerated life or the changed life, baptism, a better family, better career, better finances, better health, those are all the themes you're going to get Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Okay, and this stuff over here—Trinity, Deity of Christ, Salvation by Grace—that's just information that's doctrinal, but it's not practical. There's no bearing on your practical everyday life. It's important for you to know that stuff, but once you got it, you got it. Move on. Okay, we got more important. Things. You got to—you got to work. You—you—you you, you guys who are overweight <clears throat> need to lose weight. And what we're going to do next week is we're going to have a class on how to teach you how to, how to have a budget and cut up your credit cards. Um, and those of you who want to have a more fulfilling career, we're going to give you principles that you can apply at work so that you're honoring God in your work. And, uh, and you will need to honor God in your family too. And baptism, this is important because what you're doing in your baptism is you're going to let the whole world know that you've made a decision to be a Christ follower. And I said the center of your theology determines without fail, the object of your faith. In this material and formal principle, you are the heart, you are the center, you are the object of your faith. You know you are saved based upon your progress, your good works, your changed life, and all of the above. And there's no point. Actually, this is interesting. I actually figured out why now Rick Warren twists God's Word so badly. Because with the material, a formal principle as the Bible as a guidebook, there's no point. You don't have to actually correctly exegete what it's saying. You just need to get in the right ballpark about what the biblical principle is at place that you can apply it to your life. It doesn't matter if you're using a paraphrase or a translation. You just need to know what the principle is. Right? Okay, So... Material principle, changed life, formal principle, guidebook, as Bible is guidebook. Jesus just gets you in the door. In this theology, Christ crucified is the door that gets you in, and it's water under the bridge, and you don't get to return to It, it only applies to the people in the back. When I ask these questions, you know, Pastor, you know, I said you're preaching the law to these people. I tell these to the pastor. And uh, the purpose of the law, according to Scriptures, is to show us our sin. How are you doing in applying these principles? That was another one of my follow-up questions in these interviews. Well, God knows my heart. Okay, I'm going to give you a rough translation. God knows my heart. When The way they're applying it, it means something like this. I'm doing my best. God, great, that doesn't matter. I don't have to be perfect. God knows that I'm, that I, that I'm sincere. Right, my follow-up statement to always when somebody says God knows my heart, I say yeah, He does, because Jeremiah, the prophet, said that your heart is deceitfully wicked. You have to turn the law up with these people to get them to wake up. Huh? Um, Do I ever do I ever get hit? Um, there was one interview, there was one, one of the pastors I was talking to, you remember the guy back a few weeks, months ago that I showed up there, he in his, one of his church service said that, uh, that our church doesn't exist for believers, it, believes, it exists for unbelievers, you know, and how angry he was, he said, if, if, you, if you accepted Jesus Christ last week, then that was the last week that this church existed for you. His name is Pastor Stephen Furtick, okay, he's a 28-year-old rock star, Uh, in the church planner movement. I actually had an opportunity to talk with him, but he's the only pastor I've ever met that has a security detail. Okay? So while I was discussing things with him, I asked him the question, Pastor Furtick, when was the last time you preached the Gospel to the believers in your congregation? He did something with his hand, and two guys, big guys, (laughs) came up on either side of him and then got just slightly between me and him. And the look on their face was something like this. Boy, you ask another dumb question like that, we're going to knock you down. That was the end of the conversation, pretty much. Okay. So in this thinking, the Gospels for Unbelievers focuses on doing things to please God, and this is actually a confusion of law and gospel. Okay, I would say this is a modern-day incarnation of what we see in the Galatian heresy. Okay, And I'm being kind by the way I said it, okay? Now, do we have the volume up to where I can... people will be able to hear this, Josh? All right. I'm going to show you just a brief video from one of these types of churches. And what I'll do is I'll play it and then I'll step it backwards so that you can kind of see what I'm saying. Watch this video. This is a video from a church in Amarillo, Texas called Victory Church. And when when you're going to see something, scroll by really quick quick. It's talking about victory in all these different areas of life. And this is an advertisement for their upcoming um, fashion show that they're having as an outreach. Okay, yes. It's, hang in there. It, it goes really quick. Try it now. Okay, do you see all that? That's a little quick, but let me back it up for you. Okay, you have to have, you, you almost can go into a seizure if you do this wrong. Hang on a second here. Let's try this again. All right, here we go again. Welcome to victory. Okay, victory in finances, victory in marriage, victory in health, victory in kids, victory in work, victory in family, victory in business, victory in life. This is a church. Music. Video. Life. Stings. Hair. And fashion. Fashionably loud. Okay. February 24th at 7 p.m. Woo! Damn, these people are relevant. Okay. Here's, the, here's, here's what this merry-go-round looks like. Center is my changed life, and you just go around and around marriage, finances, career, relationships, health, parenting, marriage, finances, career... There's no Christ. Anyway, remember we talked about progress? Okay, the idea Christ gets you in the door. Here is perfection. Here's What's your responsibility is to keep growing and growing and growing and changing your life and getting closer and closer to that perfection. And uh, Jesus is coming, so you better get busy. And uh, good luck. You're going to need it. (laughs) yes, (laughs) <laughs> yes! <laughs> the question, if you didn't hear it, she says, Isn't this the same thing as Roman Catholicism, except for done a lot worse? Yeah, it's the same idea. Where Roman Catholicism got off the rails is when they took Christ crucified away for our sins, turned the Mass into something we do, a resacrifice of Christ, and then it became a cult of strange good works. Okay? Yeah, you know, the the event this is an American version of it or I would say Catholicism is more of a medieval version of it. Yeah, there's a big movement of evangelicals into Catholicism. Yeah? Uh-huh. Yeah? Yes. And yeah, and into Eastern Orthodoxy. There is a, a we've lost a few good uh, Lutherans to Eastern Orthodoxy, which I haven't quite figured out what the what's at the heart of that. So all right, let's continue. So here we go. Here's the question right now. Um, what's the material principle of this church? What'd you say? Christ crucified? Anyone else want to take a shot at it? Lutheranism as a whole. You can talk to this church or Lutheranism? Saved by grace. Okay. What would you say? Okay. And formal principle? Sola Scriptura. Okay. The premises that I give every single Sunday, those are our material and formal principles. Okay. So here we go. In Lutheranism as a whole, it, our theologians would argue that our material principle is is uh, what, the fifth article of the Oxford Confession, the one by which everything stands or falls, justification by grace alone, through faith alone, by the merits of Christ alone. And uh, you start talking in this type of language and your evangelical friends are going to go, What justification? That's what I do when I, you know, I got to cover my my assets after I've done something wrong. I got to try to find a way to justify it. You know, formal principle, sola scriptura. So John said our material principle is is really Christ died for our sins. I would say, if you take our theological words, justification by grace alone through faith alone by the merits of Christ alone, you can take that further and apply Occam's razor and cut the words out and the simplest way of understanding it is Christ died for our sins but you have to explain a little bit about what that means especially nowadays thanks to the emergent church they do not even believe that Jesus did that
0: you know who knows what they believe okay we're going to pause right there and we're going to pay a couple of bills if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition of Fighting for the Faith you can do so my email address is talkback@fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back.
1: Unless your
2: righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren. You cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs>
0: Dr. Rod Rosenblatt discussing the church's need for world class scholarship and the unique way in which the British academic model offered at the Wittenberg Institute can help provide you with a top level postgraduate theological degree.
2: Christians are dependent on good scholarship in a way that sometimes we forget. Think of Tyndall House in England. Some of those evangelicals were so ruled away from the big table conversation in the Church of England, that they had to develop graduate training under particular guys who had a high view of Christ and a high view of Scripture. Over the years, they did marvelous stuff with individual young scholars who came there to be trained.
0: So what's the difference between the European model and the American model?
2: The European is used to saying things like, I studied under so and so. And the American, uh, that's pretty foreign. And I'm not here talking about the diploma mills. I'm talking about somebody who is tutored something like Oxford or at Cambridge and, uh, walked through graduate work.
0: If you would like more information about the Wittenberg Institute's British-styled research master's degree, then visit them on the web at wittenberginstitute.org forward slash PCR or call them at area code 425-533-8659. Warning, if Christ and him crucified for your sins isn't at the center of your theology, you may have some problems. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And uh, when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508. 508- Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, here's the balance of my lecture on three-dimensional theology. Um, so, 1 Corinthians fifteen one.
1: Now, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you. Rosenblatt points this out, and he's so right. You want to know what the gospel is? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to give you the most concise definition of the gospel that you could possibly hope for. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which also you stand. Notice Paul's assumption here with the Corinthian church is that the gospel is something that isn't just yesterday that got me into the door into this wonderful parade of good works that I have to do. The Gospel is something on which I presently today stand. By which you are saved if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you unless you've believed in vain. Now, Gary Habermas, who is a good evangelical scholar, probably one of the best uh, apologists out there regarding the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he has some really good works and articles he's written about uh, verses 3 and 4. He contends, and I agree with him, based upon the language that we see here in the Greek, that verses 3 and 4 make up literally the oldest creed in Christendom. Okay, we, we, uh, we say the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, this is the earliest creed. Okay, It, it has that whole grammatical structure to it. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Notice in this tiny little ancient, ancient creed, we see a material and a formal principle. Material principle, of Christ died for our sins, formal principle, according to the Scriptures. We see them both at play. So if you really want to boil Christianity down to a material and formal principle that you can point to scripturally, it's this, Christ died for our sins, formal principle according to the scriptures, not traditions of men, not funky leaders, Christ died for our sins. Okay, so material principles, Christ died for our sins. Yeah, he's referring. That's a good question. Is he referring here only to the Old Testament? Now, I'm in the camp, theologically, I'm in the camp of people who think that those liberal scholars who say that the apostles didn't write down their gospels until 20 and 30 years after Jesus was crucified, I think that's nuts. It just doesn't make a bit of sense. The apostles, Jesus' disciples, were Jews, they were people of the book. Okay? To, the, to have this idea that, they, that Christianity was just a word of mouth religion until somebody said, you know what, we better write these things down before these guys die. They were living under the threat of death from the, from the day Jesus was crucified. They're going to put this stuff down and they're going to put it down quickly. So, I believe that it's not just referring to the Old Testament. I believe at that point... When Paul received this creed, there was two gospels that were already penned: Mark, probably Matthew. Luke comes a little bit later, and John comes farther than that. So he's not just making reference to the Old Testament scriptures; he's also making reference to new scriptures, which we have, which are, the, are at least two of the gospels at that point. So I would, I would, I'm in the camp that says that. No sooner than Jesus you know, ascended to heaven, then somebody got out some paper and ink and started writing some of this stuff down. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. I think you can definitely make the case that Paul has as the center of his theology is Christ crucified. He seems to be obsessed with this whole gospel thing. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. Not practical. Who needs that? what Pastor Rody said this morning. Like Jesus, honking one into the mud. You mean to tell me that I'm saved by some guy nailed to a cross between two thieves, dying a thief's death? Come on. But to us who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. For indeed, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. He didn't say we preached. In the Greek, it's present, active, indicative. We preach. Paul, writing to the Roman church, chapter 1, says, I long to come to you so that I may preach the gospel to you. This It's an already established church. We preach Christ crucified to a to Jews it's a stumbling block and to Gentiles it's foolishness that's everybody but those who are called but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men continuing on for consider your calling brethren that there were not many wise according to the flesh not many mighty not many noble but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise spit mud Blood, crown of thorns, cross. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world and the and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, that He might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech, great marketing campaigns, or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I determined to know nothing among you. Nothing! Tell this to these pastors. And they'll go, well, he talked about more than just that. Yeah, and every single thing he ever talked about aside from that always flowed from that first. You want to talk about marriage? Paul starts at the cross and shows how Christ crucified plays out in your marriage, in your work, even to a slave by the name of Onesimus. So, if Christ crucified for our sins in accordance with the Scripture is is our material and formal principle, then it's the center of everything and everything else flows out from that. You want to justify somebody. You want them to trust in Christ. You preach Christ crucified for our sins. You want to sanctify a believer. You preach... Christ crucified for our sins. The law cannot sanctify you. The gospel. See how the, what's the difference here? Christ isn't then relegated off into some, you know, some starting point somewhere years ago, back when you made a decision to become a Christ follower. He is now the object of your faith because he's the center of your theology. I see nothing. I know nothing except for Christ and him crucified. And in case you think I'm nuts here, because you know scripture, I mean there's a lot in scripture, okay? Let me remind you of the words of our Lord, John 5:36. Jesus speaking to the Pharisees, but the witness which I have is greater than that of John. The works which the Father has given me to accomplish is the very works that I do. They bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has borne witness of me. And you have neither heard His voice at any time, nor seen His form, and you do not have His Word abiding in you. Let me stop for a second there. Jesus is speaking to Pharisees. I think it would be foolish to say that the Pharisees didn't know the Torah. Or that they didn't know the Prophets. They didn't know their Scriptures. Of course they knew their Scriptures. They knew them so much, they were written on the lentils of their doors, placed in little tiny pieces of paper, and stuck in a little box, and right on their forehead. Well-versed in the Scriptures. And yet Jesus has the audacity to say, to these men, you do not have His Word abiding in you. Why? or you do not believe him who he sent you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life but it's these that bear witness of me and you are unwilling to come to me that you may have life y'all seen the movie the sixth sense all right is there anyone here who hasn't seen it okay i'm going to ruin the movie for you i apologize it's been 12 years since the movie's been out You've had plenty of time. This is your own doing. The movie The Sixth Sense is a movie that you cannot watch the same way twice. The first time you see it, you think you know what the movie's about. You think you've got the whole thing figured out. You've got Bruce Willis. His character is is like a psychologist or therapist of sorts, and he's helping this troubled kid... And the kid has a problem. He sees dead people. Okay? And Bruce Willis' Willis's marriage is really suffering. There just seems to be a lack of communication going on here. And as much as he tries to reach out to her, he just can't quite get over the hump and make it so that he can make this marriage thing work out. And then as the movie progresses, right at the very end, you come to realize Bruce Willis has been dead the entire movie the entire movie. And you go, didn't see that one coming. That changes everything. Right? So then you go back and you watch the movie a second time because you just have to do this. You go back and you watch it the second time, knowing now what the punchline is, you sit there and go, wow, this movie just comes to life. There's things I didn't even catch the first time through because I thought he was alive. Now that I know He's dead, it's like, wow, I get it. Right? Okay. Scripture is the same way. It's the same way. If you read the Scriptures and you think that in them you have life by getting on the rat wheel and doing all these things to please God and you think it's a guidebook for living and you think that you're pleasing God because of all the great things that you're doing in your marriage and your business and your finances and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, da da you have missed the whole point. Why? Because the whole book is actually about Jesus. It's not about you. When you read the scriptures thinking that you're like the Pharisees going to apply all these principles, it's the first time through on the sixth sense. It's not until you understand that Jesus was dead the whole time for your sins. My sins. But the book opens up and you get it. You read another story. Behold, this is after Jesus was raised from the dead. I know we're in Lent, so this is a premature passage to be reading at this time of the year. Bear with me. Jesus has been raised. Two of His disciples are on the road to Emmaus. We're in Luke 24. And behold, two of them were going That very day to a village named Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were conversing with each other all about these things which had taken place. And it came about that while they were conversing and discussing, Jesus himself approached and began traveling with them. But their eyes were prevented from recognizing him. A little miracle happening there. And he said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still and looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem and unaware of these things which has happened here in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Well, the things about Jesus the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty indeed in deed and word in and the sight of God and, and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him up to the sentence of death and crucified him. But we were hoping that he was. it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all of this, it's the third day since these things happened, but also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning and did not find his body, they came saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish men, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into His glory? And then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them all the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. We missed it. We missed it. We thought it was about us and and us being part of some earthly kingdom. We didn't see it was all about him the whole time. And they approached the village where they were going, and he acted as though he was going to go farther. And they urged him, saying, Stay with us, for it is getting toward evening. And the day is now nearly over. And he went in to stay with them. And it came about that when he had reclined at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and breaking it, he began giving it to them, and their eyes were open, and they recognized Him. broke the bed. Wait a second, you're Jesus! And then He vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, were not our hearts burning within us while He was speaking to us on the road, while He was explaining the Scriptures to us? I have an employee that does that to me every now and then. I'll tell her something. She'll go, hmm. I don't know what that means. He was explaining the Scriptures to us. What was he explaining? It was about him. And they rose that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found gathered together the eleven and those who were with them, saying, the Lord has really risen and has appeared to Simon. And they began to relate their experiences on the road and how he was recognized by them in the breaking of the bread. So here's the deal. A lot of people miss the overarching theme of the Scriptures. Okay? If, this is just kind of an example. I mean, a little timeline here. So this is not designed to be completely inclusive. But you know, in, in the Scriptures, we read the story of Adam. Then we read the story of Noah. Then we read the story of Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, David. And people make a fatal mistake when they think that all of these little things are just disconnected little stories. So when I'm preaching about Adam, I need to preach about Adam, right? Because that's what the story is about. Right? Or when I'm preaching about Jacob, I need to preach about Jacob because that's what the story is about. Well, even in our own literature, if you read the books, The Lord of the Rings, you've got The Fellowship of the Ring, Two Towers, The Return of the King. I mean, you have different scenes, right? But isn't the overall overarching story of The Lord of the Rings, the battle between good and evil and how ultimately good prevails over evil, right? You can make that the overarching theme. What's the overarching theme of the Scriptures? Christ's redemptive work for sinners in all ages. These are not isolated stories. These all play into the big story. So, Adam points us to Christ. Noah points us to Christ. Everybody points us to Christ. Christ. Because it's actually all about his work, not ours. So you see what I'm saying. And if you think I'm crazy, why do we have genealogies in the Gospels? Okay, look at this: Matthew one, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was born Isaac, and Isaac Jacob, and to Jacob Judah, and and his brothers. And Judah was born Perez. Do any of these people sound familiar to you? Ah, I get it. All of these guys mentioned in the Old Testament were following the line of the one true King. The one true God. The one true Redeemer. And His work. So we can truly say, I can know nothing among you except for Christ crucified for our sins. That's what the whole stories about
0: all right what'd you think i'd love to get your feedback you can email me my email address is talkback at fighting or you can ask to be my friend on facebook it's facebook.com forward slash pirate christian you can follow me on twitter my name there pirate christian until next week may god richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by jesus christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins amen